This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Welcome to The Every Lawyer, a Canadian Bar Association podcast. I'm your host, Marlies Silversweeney. You don't have to scroll far down your Twitter feed to see the messages of online harassment and hate. But when it comes to laws prohibiting these actions, they need to strike a balance between protecting freedom of expression, but also protecting people against online hatred and discrimination. Today on The Every Lawyer, we're going to discuss just how to get this right. The CBA's Constitutional and Human Rights, Criminal Justice, and Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Community Sections made submission to the Justice Minister's Office in the fall of 2020. These were in response to a consultation on these issues. They argued that the civil law in this area leaned too heavily on combating hatred so much that it was repealed for inhibiting freedom of expression. The government's expected to introduce new legislation on this issue soon. How does it strike the right balance? To answer our questions and guide us through the discussion today, we're speaking with David Mattes. He's a human rights, immigration, and refugee law lawyer who, who serves as legal counsel for B'nai Birth Canada. In 2008, he was awarded the Order of Canada for defending the rights of society's most vulnerable members. David was also a key contributor to the CBA's recent submission on issues of online hate. David, thank you for being here today. You're welcome. So Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act was repealed in 2013. It allowed people to complain to the Federal Human Rights Commission about the communication of hate messages by telephone or on the internet. But its opponents said it had been used as a sword, not as a shield, to protect Canadians, and that it severely curtailed freedom of speech. Can you tell me a bit more about this and whether or not you agree? Yeah, uh, I can tell you a bit more about it, and uh, there's an extent to which I, I agree. Uh the principle, I think, was right, that there needs to be a remedy against hate on the Internet. The uh, trouble with the system that was set up is that it didn't have enough in the way of procedural safeguards or due process so that it could be used by any to complain, by anybody to complain about almost anything against anybody else. Uh, and uh, the, the sometimes these complaints just ended up being harassment against the uh, person that was the target or the organization that was the target of the complaint. So uh, what I think was needed was a replacement that set up more elaborate due process requirements so it, it could more easily attain its goal. But instead, it was just repealed, which, in my view, was going too far and, and didn't really address the problems, which was not the substance, but rather the procedure. So given past criticisms, why is a specific remedy for online hate needed? What would it do and how would it protect Canadians? It's needed because there's a lot of uh, online hate. Uh, and uh, the uh, internet providers on the whole, they uh, have uh, terms of service which prohibit online hate, but uh, they don't run that particular provision in their terms of service very well. Uh, I mean, the internet service providers, they're experts in technology of providing internet service and, and they're not experts on what is hate and what isn't hate and they also 
don't have much in the way uh, of procedures themselves for uh, establishing or, or rejecting what is in, uh, online hate. The timelines can be slow, uh, the decisions can seem arbitrary, there, there's often no reasons. They produce transparency reports which are far from transparent, so it's very hard to figure out what they're doing. Uh, and really when you're dealing with a subject like this, you need uh, the expertise uh, that the governments can bring, you need the due process that the courts can bring, just leaving it to the internet providers alone uh, doesn't work. And so right now, after um, Section 13 was repealed in 2013, is that what we've done? We've left it to the internet platforms and internet providers? That's, in effect, what, what's happened. Uh, okay. The, uh, and, and we've seen, of course, lots of problems with that. Uh, yes. Accelerating problems, Not, I mean, not just in Canada, but around the world, which I believe has prompted the government to look at this issue again. Okay. All right. And so uh, previously you mentioned more procedural safeguards if we're going to have legislation that, you know, curtails online hate messages. Uh, the submission that you were part of drafting recommends that the legislation set out principles for awarding costs as a way to ensure the legislation isn't being used unfairly. Can you talk me through how this would work? Awarding costs is, is far from uh, an unusual feature in, in legal proceedings. I mean, it, right. <laughs> uh, typically, costs are awarded with the cause. I mean, whoever wins gets costs in civil proceedings. That was not possible for these proceedings. And we're not suggesting that it, they happen in every proceedings. Uh, but the, uh, the courts have said for the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal and in other tribunals, unless there is a statutory provision to award costs that allows them to award costs. They can't. And mm. so we're not saying that it should be like the normal civil proceeding where costs always just go with the cause, but the, there should be a power to award costs in, in frivolous proceedings and vexatious proceedings in, in, in proceedings which don't have any merit from the get-go. We're thinking here of uh, not only making the, the remedy viable, but preventing it from being abused in such a way as that it, it becomes a form of harassment for uh, against people whose statements somebody doesn't like. And uh, awarding costs is one way of doing that. Okay. And then the CBA submission also recommends that the Canadian Human Rights Commission's screen cases. Can you tell me, can you explain why it's needed and what that would actually look like in practice? Again, what we're looking at is uh, the avoidance of uh, frivolous litigation in this area. Screening is far from unusual. Uh, in, in fact, what, what we saw when these commissions were set up, because they're provincial as well as federal, is, and, and this still goes on uh, to some extent, uh, or in some provinces, they both screen cases and conduct cases. And, uh, the, uh, and uh, we had suggested a decoupling of the screening and conduct function that all cases should be screened, but not all cases should be conducted by the commission, uh, that the commission would have the power, if they in, in an important case, uh, to conduct a case or where it was a case where perhaps a disadvantaged person uh, didn't have the means to conduct the case themselves and, and the commission felt it was uh, worth doing. But a screening is, is just a way of uh, making sure that uh, 
another way of making sure that frivolous cases uh, don't uh, go too far. Now, this screening uh, function already exists in the criminal law because you can't start a prosecution for willful promotion of hatred without the consent of the Attorney General of the province in which the event occurred. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't ex- exist, well, I mean, right now there's no law, but when, when the law, uh, uh, when and if the, 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 there is something to do with the internet, uh, there needs to be, I, uh, we're suggesting, something like that so that uh, somebody cannot just drag somebody else uh, through a proceeding simply because uh, uh, it, it annoys the, the, the person who started the proceeding. Right. Okay. Other procedural safeguards. Sorry, we're going through all of them. But they're, they're quite interesting. Um, the ones recommended include requiring complainants to choose a forum and also the right of respondents to know their accuser. Can you explain to me why these are important uh, in ensuring a balance between freedom of speech and protection against online hate? Well, as I mentioned, we do have these jurisdictions across Canada, uh, federal and provincial. Uh, And uh, the when you're on stuff on the internet, of course, it's everywhere. So it's not just in one province; it's in all the provinces, and uh, right, and and it's federal as well. And so, what we saw uh, before Section 13 was repealed, uh, we had complainants going to pro- several provinces in the federal government at once, making simultaneous complaints about the same material against the same. <laughs> person or entity or organization. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, which was, uh, and, and which was onerous and, and the, the complaints themselves were, were poorly founded as well. So right. it, it became an obvious problem. Uh, and so, uh, and, and the reality is if one forum has jurisdiction, it can give an adequate remedy. There's no need to go to all the various jurisdictions to do that. So. Right. It's just cutting off a, a, an avenue of harassment. Uh, that, that was the the, the point of uh, that one. Okay. And then what about the right of respondents to know their accuser? Can you explain this a bit more? Because I'm not very familiar with how these claims have worked in the past, but would respondents not know who was asserting these claims against them? No, uh, because, I mean, as I say, the, the way the system worked, uh, the commissions would not only screen, they'd also conduct. So uh, the, uh, all the uh, target of the complaint would know is what the commission told them. And, and the commission wouldn't necessarily disclose who made the complaint. Uh, and in fact, often they did not. They just said, we have heard that, uh, and they pre- proceed to, in some cases, just uh, report a rumor, uh, but they won't say who told them the rumor. Uh, wow. And, and then proceed to conduct a case based on this rumor. And uh, that itself was unsatisfactory. I, I mean, the, the point of knowing the accuser, uh, it, it's also uh, a matter of, of disclosure of what's the information, what's the source of information. If you know the accuser, you can cross-examine the accuser if necessary. You can find out basically what's behind it. Uh, because if all you've got is the commission telling you this is what they know, I mean, basically, they go on a fishing expedition to find out if there's any basis of the complaint and, and your defenseless against it, because you don't even know what started, other than what the commission tells you, what started this fishing expedition. Right. Are there any other examples where respondents might not know their accusers in Canadian law? Uh, it, it can sometimes happen uh, it, it, for witness protection purposes. There may be uh, good instances where a, a, a witness would be a threat and, and needs to be protected for that 
purpose. Uh, the um, it could happen in some spousal abuse cases, for instance. Uh, the, right. Uh, where, but but civilly, this is a civil claim, yes. Yeah. Um, well, uh, it, uh, can I give other examples in a civil situation where a person would not know uh, their accuser? Uh, I can't think of any offhand because this business of the uh, commission conduct as opposed to the uh, complaining conduct is a feature of human rights commissions, but uh, I, I can't think of uh, other instances where it occurs. I mean, I'm not familiar, uh, right. well, imagine, with all administrative tribunals. <laughs> of course. Uh, and there may be some other administrative tribunals that function in the same way where they conduct the cases, uh, some of these labor relations boards and so on. I, I think, for instance, that unions will conduct cases on behalf of their members uh, and uh, I, I don't know. It may be that in some situations they don't actually disclose who the member is they're conducting the case for. I, I don't know that's the case, but I mean, that's a possible situation where it might arise. It's it's just I don't get involved in that area of the law, so I'm not that familiar with it. Of course. It just seems to me that this is a fairly unique aspect of, of the prior uh, law and the and how it went through to, to not know an accuser and, as you say, to not be able to cross-examine the person. It it may well be unique. It's just I can't tell you for sure whether it is. Okay. Canada hasn't had legislation in this area since 2013, I suppose. Mm. Uh, does does that make us rare in other jurisdictions, you know, Europe, North America, or is that pretty standard? Uh, on the contrary, I mean, we haven't anything. But what the Americans have done is even worse because they've enacted what's called safe harbor legislation, which says that the internet providers can't be prosecuted or, or, or sued for what's on their services. Uh, the United States has enacted a form of immunity, which Canada mm. hasn't done. Uh, they've just left the, the, the field blank. There, there's a lot of efforts in the U.S. to amend the Safe Har Harbor Provisions, Communications Decency Act, uh, which has the Safe Harbor Provision. And there, there's a, a, a wealth of uh, proposed amendments uh, before Congress uh, on that, largely uh, because, uh, well, I mean, a lot of these Internet providers are housed or headquartered in the U.S., uh, and there's been a lot of controversy both about uh, what they're allowing and they're not allowing it. And so, uh, you, you, and, and uh, I mean, there's a partisan division about what should be allowed and not be allowed, but both sides have grievances with what's allowed and not allowed. And right. so there's, a, there's a, uh, I could see some sort of change happening in the U.S., but in, in Canada, we, we don't have that problem. Uh, I mean, it's it's not a, as much a partisan issue uh, it, uh, as uh, it is in the U.S., uh, but we, we just do, we see lots of problems because the absence of it's a field where there's no regulation. Right. Okay. And what about in Europe? I mean, that's broad. Uh, but do you have an example or two of a country uh, yeah, that? I mean, it is possible to talk about Europe because uh, there's the European Union and the European right. Union. And, and the... Uh, uh, what they've tried to do, uh, they, they have set up some standards, uh, but and they've also tried to uh, work with the private sector, and they've negotiated an agreement with them uh, uh, so that uh, they would have trusted flaggers, uh, which come from mm -hmm. the NGO sector, and, and, and uh, the, the uh, internet providers 
when they get a complaint from a trusted flagger, have to respond within a certain time, I think 48 hours, and and, and, t- and take down uh, the uh, subject matter uh, against which uh, there's a complaint if it doesn't fit within their services. And so, so that's positive. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, it's certainly a step over above what we have here. I noticed that YouTube has a tr- developed just on its own website a trusted flagger system, but it's not quite the same as what the uh, European Commission has devised. And and uh, and I have no problem with the internet providers uh, d- doing something. I mean, to to get it to make their terms of service function. I, I think that's okay, but uh, I, I think there still needs to be some legislation uh, and some governmental oversight because the. Uh, uh, taking things down works against the business model of the internet providers. Right. Uh, right. And and as I say, it's not their area of expertise, neither the subject matter content nor the due process, or the procedures. And so there needs to be something more than that. And within the within Europe itself, uh, I, there isn't much in, in the way of a, a, a sophisticated legal remedy yet that, that goes beyond uh, what the internet providers uh do through the, this trusted flagger system. Okay, so Canada really has the opportunity, I guess we could say, to become a leader in this area. Yeah, I mean, Australia has been grappling with this as well. Uh, and uh, I, I, I would say that this is, a, I, I mean, obviously the internet is, is, is a great boon. I mean, right now we're communicating through the internet. <laughs> uh, it, the, uh, but, but it's generated, uh, well, like any technology, uh, the, the technology itself is morally neutral, uh, but you get the full range of human nature uh, addressing and using and manipulating the technology. People who want to use it for good and people who want to use it for harm. And the 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 amount of harm, the extent of harm, the, the types of harm that those who want to inflict harm can inflict through the internet is only becoming apparent a- after it's done, as it's done. Mm-hmm. So, we end up playing catch up, and uh, and we need to enact the safeguards uh, uh, after we've seen the harm that's been inflicted. And and as the internet has become more and more pervasive, we're seeing more and more of this harm. So the 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 need for catch up becomes more and more imperative. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. This might be a hard question, so feel free not to answer it. But I was wondering if you could walk me through what um, a claim would look like, like an example of why someone would go to the Canadian Human Rights Commission, and then what that would look like for them based on the procedural safeguards that the CBA is recommending. Well, uh, of course, what the procedures uh, would be would, to a certain extent, uh, be determined uh, by the system once the system is in place. And uh, I mean, right now we have a system of complaints for, let's say, discrimination with the Canadian Human Rights Commission or the uh, provincial uh, commissions. Uh, and there are various models out there. Some of them, uh, commissions don't get involved in cases at all. Uh, and and, uh, and there's just direct access to tribunals. The uh, and But uh, what we're... Uh, and if you go to the Human Rights Commission website right now, They've got a, a questionnaire, uh, and uh, if you 
And they have a kind of a very, I would say, restrictive list of choices, uh, which doesn't necessarily encompass all the situations within the framework of the Act. And if you can sort of fit within the questionnaire, you can get your complaint process through that questionnaire. Uh, otherwise, you can, you can file a complaint in paper. They don't even give you an email option. Uh, the, But uh, the... Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, whether it's a questionnaire or an email or, or fax or mail, those are kind of technical questions. The uh, But I, I think it starts off with somebody sees something on the Internet they, they don't like, so they make a complaint. Uh, they can make a complaint either against the poster or, or the provider or both. And uh, then it goes to the commission, and uh, if what we recommend is in place, the commission would look at it and, first of all, screen it, either in or out, admissible or inadmissible. Uh, the, uh, if, if, if it passes the, the screening stage, uh, then uh, the, the commission has to make a choice between conduct or no conduct. Um, and presumably, in most cases, it would be no conduct. Uh, the commission would only be taking the few cases where uh, it's a good complaint, but the complainant can't conduct uh, have conduct of the case, uh, or, or it raises a kind of general issue in which the commission wants to get involved. So, if it's uh, the uh, a complainant who's just screened in, it would be much like civil litigation. Uh, the, the person would file the materials, uh, it, it would go to the tribunal, uh, the opposing side would file their materials, and uh, it, there would be a hearing and the tribunal would decide whether the, uh, well, there could or it could not be a tribunal. I mean, the tribunal could uh, function in writing as well. And the uh, and then there would be a, a decision whether uh, the complaint was good or, or not. Okay, well, thanks for walking me through that. I just wanted to more clarification on how the procedural safeguards would actually function as opposed to uh, past legislation in 2013 and before. So the submissions that you made were made in the fall of 2020, and there's been some indication that the government could be planning to introduce legislation on these issues imminently. Mm. What do you want to see? What's next in this area? I suppose you know, the Canadian Bar Association would like to see all its recommendations adopted uh, <laughs> and the legislation with those recommendations enacted and implemented as soon as possible. Right. Okay. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked you, David, that you think is important for our audience to understand about this? It's such a fascinating area. Well, what I would say is, I mean, you, you've, you've talked about uh, disclosure of the accuser and, and you've talked about um, the multiplicity of proceedings and you've talked about screening, the which are, of course, some of the recommendations the Canadian Bar Association made, uh, but we've made many more. Uh, and uh, the, I mean, from the perspective of the Canadian Bar Association, they're all important. Uh, the And we do have a brief which is available on the internet which people can access if they want to go through them. Um, I would say generally what we've got here is two competing human rights. Uh, the right to freedom from incitement to hatred and the right to freedom of expression. And, and they're both equally important. Uh, there are uh, people who can justifiably complain about breach of either of them. Uh, and uh, what you've got as a result of it is, is a balancing a effort. Uh, the previous legislation, uh, in, in my view, uh, went too far against freedom of expression and, and in favor of 
prohibiting incitement to hatred. And, and then we've got the, with the repeal, we went in the exact opposite direction, went too far in favor of freedom of expression uh, and not enough about uh, freedom from incitement to hatred. So what we're going to do, hopefully, is get new legislation that will get the balance right. Uh, and I, 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 it's going to be... Uh, inevitably a work in progress as the internet itself is uh but i i think that the internet is is so important indeed so so pervasive that we just we just can't leave things the way they are and and, and if things don't work out from what we've done before we just got to keep on trying until we get it right right okay well thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for explaining the issues so clearly to our audience we all really appreciate it uh, thank you for asking me Thanks again to David for giving us so much to consider when it comes to balancing freedom of expression and freedom from incitement of online hate and harassment. The CBA's submission to the Justice Minister's Office on these issues referenced in this episode is available under episode notes. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these issues. Tweet to us at CBA underscore news, or you can reach me at my handle at MarliseSS. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and leave us a review. We also have a podcast in French called Juriste Branché. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. 